So for today's class, we're doing something a little bit different uh, than the parsha of the week. We're actually going to be focused on the coming year. Um, you know, it's the month of Elul. It's the month that we prepare for the for the new year. And uh, besides for the fact that the new year is, uh, has a new number, right? This year is 5781. Last year was 5780. The coming year is going to be 5782. It's a year that never existed before. Um, so it's something completely and totally new. In fact, the Alter Rebbe uh, in the Tanya uh, has a whole explanation of the fact that God's energy that animates this world, it's a new energy every year. So it's not just that when Rosh Hashanah will begin, it's the same as last year Rosh Hashanah, the same Sukkot, and the 12th of Cheshvan is the same as this past 12th of Cheshvan. It's all different. It's something new and refreshed, uh, a type of energy that never existed in this world, even since creation. So it's a whole different ballgame. Um, so, <clears throat> all right, so I think I'm looking at the screen and at the, the crowd here equally, so we'll be fine. All righty, this coming year, one of the main aspects of the year is the fact that it is a leap year, a leap year, a Jewish leap year. Now, what does that mean, a Jewish leap year? Um, yes. Oh, an extra month. Very good. So typically in a year, you have 12 months. Uh, but this coming year, and in, uh, in the span of 19 years, it happens seven times, either every third year or every second. It depends on the exact uh, schedule, which is actually all figured out till the end of time. Um, depending on the year, one of those years will be a leap year, which means we add a 13th month, which at the outset seems silly. The year is 12 months, and that's it. We're done. Why would you add a 13th month? What would be... The necessity for that, yes. Mm. Yes, in addition to the fact that it's a leap year, this coming year is the Shemitah year. 13 months of Shemitah, right. Shemitah is, literally means the sabbatical year. Um, and the Torah teaches us that, that when the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, they started to count. Um, they started to count six years of working the land, and then the seventh year, they were obligated not to plow or to harvest the land. Um, so that's the year of Shemitah. Um, and it's relevant until today. Uh, so this year, this coming year, starting Rosh Hashanah, uh, farmers in the land of Israel are not allowed to work the land. That's why uh, typically produce, you know, fruits and vegetables, they don't have to have a kosher certification because what's not kosher about fruits and vegetables? But if they come from Israel, you have to be careful. You have to make sure that it's not produce that was worked on uh, during the Shemitah year. So it's, it's a very big uh, problem to eat food and produce that was produced in the Shemitah year. Uh, if you find Israeli Jaffa oranges in the store today, you don't have a problem with Shemitah because probably they weren't dealt with seven years ago. So today you don't have an issue, but starting this coming year, uh, the only way that you could really uh, uh, enjoy produce from the land of Israel is if uh, it has if it has a hechsher, if it has a kosher certification. So it's a whole different level of kosher certification when it comes to that. So yes, Marvin, thank you for bringing that up. This coming year is also a Shemitah year, but today's class is going to focus on the fact that it is a leap year. What exactly is it? And um, what is the message that we can learn from the leap year? So let's go straight into it. On page three, we have uh, the sources from the Torah, um, the Jewish calendar is something that's so important in Judaism. And you'd think that the Torah would be very specific on how to set up a Jewish calendar. 
Well, that's not true. In fact, the Torah is extremely cryptic. There's almost no information about how to set up a calendar. All we know is that it's the first mitzvah that was given to the Jewish people through Moses um, when they were about to leave Egypt. Before they left Egypt, the full two weeks before the Exodus, God communicated to Moses how to set up a Jewish calendar. And the reason why it's the first mitzvah is because all of Judaism revolves around the calendar. There's so many holidays. Uh, there's the age of people. You know, when does a person become a Jewish adult? A woman when she's 12 and a man when, when he's 13. But what years are they in the Gregorian calendar? What, what, what defines the age of a person? So the calendar is a very important part of Judaism. In fact, it's the foundation. And the Torah is as cryptic as it can get. Source number one, Exodus 12. God said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month shall be the head month to you. It shall be the first month of the year. That's it. <laughs> Which month? All right. So uh, tradition has it that uh, the Exodus happened in the month of Nisan, uh, which is in the spring. And God communicated to, this, to, them, to them at the beginning of the month of Nisan. So Rashi explains, what is month? The word month in Hebrew is chodesh. In Hebrew, the word chodesh literally means renewal. Now, before we go further, it's interesting that in the, in the, in the Jewish language, in Lashon HaKodesh, in the Holy Tongue, there are two words that are used to describe month. One of them, which is more popularly known, is Chodesh, right? Chodesh Nisan, Chodesh Tishrei, that's month. Um, the other one is Yerach. Yerach. Now, Chodesh comes from the root word Chadash, which means new, renewal. Yerach comes from the root word Yareach, which means the moon. All right. So what is a month? A month is a lunar cycle. That's a month. That's a real month. Okay. Um, this month, Sarashi so says like this. In Hebrew, the word Chodesh literally means renewal. God showed Moses the moon in its renewal and said to him, when the moon renews itself, you will have a new month. Moses found difficulty determining, and it says, this is the month. This is the Chodesh. So Rashi explains why, what's the idea of this? It's, not it's actually referring, when he's talking about the renewal of the month, Moses found difficulty determining the precise moment of the renewal of the moon, in what size it should appear before it is fit for sanctification. So God showed him with his finger, the moon in the sky and said to him, you must see a moon like this and sanctify the month. So clearly, clearly this communication happened at a time when the moon was renewed at the beginning of the month. Okay. So this happened in Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first of the month of Nisan, when the moon was in its renewal and God pointed to it. Now, what does it mean God points? You know, God does not have any type of physical manifestation. Uh, but whatever that means, Moses in his prophetic vision was able to understand that God is pinpointing the exact moment so that Moses should know what a renewed month, what a renewed uh, moon looks like. Okay? Of course, yes. Yeah, you can write as much as you'd like. Yes. Exactly. The end of yeah, exactly. A very, very tiny, tiny sliver. 
uh, if you see, we have this little photo on the bottom, uh, which basically shows how the, the moon does not have its own light. It's only reflecting the light of the sun. And so the, the crescent or the full moon depends on the position of the moon against the sun. If it's reflecting the sun only on one part, I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole vernacular and all the details. I'm not, I'm not an astrologist there or astronomist, right? I'm not an astronomist. And this is not science class, huh? Astronomer, right. I'm not an astronomer and I'm not in science class here, so you'll have to figure it out yourself. But I'm sure you all know that the moon cycle also, oh, how long does the moon cycle? So let's, the, you know, uh, Maimonides explains it uh, at more length. Uh, source number two, the moon becomes hidden and cannot be seen for approximately two days or slightly less or slightly more every month. Approximately one day before its conjunction with the sun at the end of the month, and one day after its conjunction with the sun, before it is sighted in the west in the evening. The first night when the moon is sighted in the west after being hidden in the beginning of the month. Afterwards, 29 days are counted from that day. The lunar cycle, in fact, Maimonides gives a specific time. It's 29 days, 12 hours, and approximately 44 minutes. All right? You can take, take me for granted on that one. So it's 29 days, 12 hours, and about 40-something-odd minutes. So you'd say, okay, so is a month 29 days? No. Uh, the Torah determines that we only count days to the month and not hours to the month. So if the lunar cycle is 29 and a half days, or 29 days and 12 hours, if we're going to determine that a month is 29 days every time, we're going to be missing days because every two months you've gotten accumulated 12 hours 24 hours 36 hours etc so it was determined that the months will be 29 days and 30 days alternative so every month in the jewish calendar the first so for example tishrei is always 30 days well tishrei Cheshem, and kislev can get confusing but let's go a little bit further let's say nisan nisan is always 30 days iyar is always 29 days sivan is always 30 days Tammuz is always 29 days so on and so forth, there's only about two months that could switch between 29 and 30. That's another interesting complexity of the Jewish calendar, which we're not going to get into now. All right, so here we have the Jewish months. The Jewish months are the lunar cycle. That's a real month, okay? Uh, January, February, March, April, May, those are artificial months. Nothing happens in, in January. The only reason why they exist is because we have a year. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. Okay, so now, so this is, the lunar cycle. Now, seems simple, but it's not so simple because the lunar, if you accumulate 12 lunar cycles, you have 354 days. So if you take six 30s and six 29s and add them up, you have 354 days. The solar cycle, which determines the seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall, is 365 days. What's the difference between the lunar the 12 lunar cycles and one solar cycle 11 days approximately what's the problem with that if you only keep a lunar calendar every accumulative five six seven years pesach and shavuos and sukkahs are going to be all over the place and pesach must be celebrated in the spring source number three in exodus when we talk about the story of the exodus from egypt and the festival of Passover, that is, uh, you know, a commemoration of that, a celebration of that. Keep the festival of matzahs, 
eat matzahs for seven days as I commanded in the designated time in the spring. Because it was in the spring that you left Egypt. Spring is very important to the Exodus because when God took us out of Egypt, he took us out at the perfect season. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. He took us out in spring. He took us out at the time that we're going to be comfortable. So that's part of the celebration. Therefore, it's, it, it's, it's crucial that we celebrate Passover in the springtime. The problem is if you only have lunar months, if you only count your years based on the lunar calendar, your season, uh, pa Passover will be all over the place. You start off in spring, but then after a few years, it'll be in winter and so on and so forth. For example, the, the Muslim calendar is a lunar calendar, and Ramadan is all over the place. So sometimes they, they, uh, they're lucky and it's in the winter, so it's shorter days. Sometimes they're not lucky and it's in the summer and it's longer days and they're thirsty and it's, it's, it's sunnest, whatever. That's the, way, that's the way they have it. Uh, so it's a, lunar, it's a lunar calendar for them. So the solar calendar is based on the season. It's 365 days, but there's no such a thing as a month, right? So the Gregorian calendar is a solar calendar. It's based on the seasons. It's dependable. It's always 365 days, always four seasons, exact. You know, you don't even have to wait for the groundhog. We'll tell you exactly when spring starts. Um, so, uh, so the, the, but a month is artificial. A month in a solar count in a solar year is meaningless. On January 1st, January 30th, or I don't even know how many days could be in January. Nothing happens in the world during that time. How many days could be in January? I don't know. Always 31. All right. So in those, by the way, the, the number 31 makes no sense. 31 is meaningless. In fact, 29 and 30 are also meaningless unless they're in an official system. 29, 30, 29, 30, because what's meaningful? 29, 12 hours, 40 minutes, right? So in other words, when God created the world, just think about this for a moment. God created the world on the fourth day. He set the luminaries in the sky. And, and he explains, the luminaries are in the sky, not only to give light to the world, the sun during the day and the moon at night, but also to determine units of time. The sun determines the seasons, and the moon determines months. We don't determine months. We don't determine years. Nature is determining these times. But we have to figure out how to make them work together. And the truth of the matter is that putting together a Jewish calendar is our job, not God's job. Okay? So all of the rules and all it's setting down into practice how to set up the Jewish calendar, that's our job. We're the ones that determine that. In fact, the, the Medrash tells us that the angels come to God and they say, when is Rosh Hashanah? And God says, why are you asking me? I'm not in charge of the calendar. Let's go to the Sanhedrin. Let's go to the Jewish court. They're the ones that are going to determine when is Rosh Hashanah. Yes. No, they, they didn't say that. They say do it how you want. <laughs> so Marvin's asking, could it have been a correct calendar, but in a different system? Or if you use the same system. So here's an interesting thing that's important to understand about the Jewish calendar. The calendar we have today, which is actually perfect. It's a perfect type of calendar. It's dependable and you can, you can run with it for thousands of years. This calendar was not always the Jewish calendar. 
We only started keeping such a calendar. In other words, a workable calendar, a calculated calendar, uh, 1,700 years ago, 1,800 years ago, something like that, give or take. Um, before that, before that, as long as there was a Sanhedrin, the, court, the, the Supreme Court of Judaism in Israel, the calendar was determined month by month. All right, I don't want to get into a long discussion about this, but in fact, it was determined month by month, and it was dependent on testimony. Two witnesses would have to come to the Sanhedrin, to the court, and testify that they saw the new moon. They would accept their testimony. They would cross-examine them, accept the testimony, and then it will be determined that Rosh Chodesh is on that day. If witnesses did not arrive that day, it would be the next day. Now, in other words, now even when that was the case, even when it was dependent on testimony, the Sanhedrin was in control. In other words, they would make calculations and say, look, we know exactly how this year has to work out, and we know that Passover has to be at a certain time, and the months can be haywire, and we can't have months that begin when the moon is already three or four days uh, waxed. So they were in control of it, but it was not something they were able to calculate for thousands of years or even months in advance. It was calculated month by month. Now, the, the most important thing that we're going to talk about now is the idea of the leap year. What's the idea of the leap year? So let's go to source four. Let's hear it in his words. The months of the year are lunar months, as implied by the verse, the burnt offering of the month when it is renewed. And this month shall be for you the first of the month. So a chodesh, a month, is a yerach, which is dependent on the yareach, on the moon. When the moon is renewed, that's the beginning of a month. You have a full cycle, that's a month. Concerning this verse, our sages commented, God showed Moses in the vision of prophecy, an image of the moon, and told him, when you see the moon like this, sanctify it. The years we follow are solar years, as implied in the verse, keep the month of spring. So we do not have a lunar calendar. We have lunar months, but a solar year. We have to keep the, the, the seasons proper properly. So Passover needs to be in the spring, but Passover is on the 15th of the month of Nisan. So there's a date to Passover, which is dependent on the lunar cycles. And then there is a season to Passover, which is dependent on the solar cycle. Now, here he gets to the leap year idea. How much longer is a solar year than a lunar year? Approximately 11 days. Therefore, when these additional days reach a sum of 30, or slightly more, slightly less, an additional month is added, causing the year to include 13 months. So here's the idea. When you have an accumulated extra 11, another 11 is 22, now you get to 33, you got you to move things back. So we throw in an extra month into the year, and now we're back on schedule. Sometimes we'll do it after only two years. Exactly, you have an extra three days. So if you're doing it only every three years, you're going to mess things up again. You know, things are going to get moved. So it can't really be every three years. It's a system of, of, of a 19-year cycle. Seven times in 19, you'll have a leap year. So sometimes it will be after after one year or after two years, depends, depending on, on where we're up to in that system, in that uh, process. This is called a leap year. This is necessary because it is impossible to have a year with 12 months and an odd number of days, as implied by the verse of the months of the year. On this verse, our, our sages commented, you count the month, you count the months of a year, but not the days of a year. So just like a month cannot be with hours, it's got to be by days. 
So too, a year is defined by months. You can't have 12 months and 10 days in a year. So that's the Jewish calendar system. So it turns out that now this is a this is a system that is communicated to us exclusively, exclusively in Tarash Balfeh, in the tradition. Um, and this depended on tradition. In fact, there were times, there were times where there was fierce, fierce uh, debate within uh, within the you know the rabbinic circles about certain issues of the month, etc. And this was one of the most uh, consequential debates that took place, and tradition always ruled out. In other words, even if someone had a good opposition to a certain position, if this position was in line with tradition, it always won out. It was always accepted that this is the way it's going to be. Um, there's a lot of drama that went around the Jewish calendar. Suffice it to say, the calendar we have today was set into place by a great sage named Hillel, but not the famous Hillel that talked about the Torah on one foot and all of that. Uh, it's his great, 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 great grandson who led the Jewish people in the final generation when the Sanhedrin was basically disbanded in the land of Israel. So he set up a calendar. And in fact, it's alluded to in the Torah that there will come a time when the Jewish calendar will no longer be determined by testimony. It will be determined by calculation. But it's not However you want it, it's according to the rules that God gave us. So the calendar, amazingly enough, is like this beautiful blend between like God made. In other words, the calendar is dependent on nature. The months are dependent on the lunar cycle. The seasons are dependent on the solar cycle. It's a, you know, you can't mess with it, but it's very much man-made. It's very much, there's, there's the fingerprints of man on the way this calendar is done. Um, we just went through the basics. There's, there's like a total of 20 chapters in Maimonides dealing with the, with the calendar. About 10 of those chapters are about the solar system and, and, and very, very fascinating stuff, which I can't even say I've begin, begun to scratch the surface of, but very fascinating ideas. There's a lot of astronomy there and, and it's, it's, very, uh, it's, it's amazing stuff. So, why are we learning about this? Why is it important for us to know this? I mean, you know, you'll get the calendar in the mail. By the way, I went to the mail today, so you should be expecting it sometime soon. Uh, but it's Corona and USPS, so uh, it's all up. Um, you're going to get a calendar in the mail. You'll know exactly when the holidays are going to be. You'll know that there's a leap year. There's 13 months instead of just 12. By the way, it's just a very important uh, piece of information. The only month that is added is the final month of the year. What's the final month of the year? Adar, right? So the first month is Nisan, right? The time of Shoshanah, but the first month is Nisan. So Adar, the month of Purim, that's always the added month. You know why? We love to drink, so might as well have, instead of just 30 days of drinking, 60 days of drinking, I'm, I'm kidding around. Yeah, Adar is always the added one, uh, which comes with its own set of uh, profound message, the fact that Adar is doubled this coming year, etc. cetera. Uh, but why is it important for us to know all of this background, the fact that there's the sun, there's, there's the solar system, the solar cycle and the lunar cycle, the months, the years, the leap year idea, what's what's the whole situation? So the, the Rebbe, and this, we all learn a, a talk from the Rebbe and also a, a public letter. Uh, before every major holiday, the Rebbe would pen a public letter to all Jewish people. And the Rebbe is going to explain there is a profound, relevant message that the idea of the leap year has for each and every one of us. All right. So let's go, uh, let's go straight into this.
Greeks, the Romans, yeah, they had this stuff. Yeah, Maimonides writes, interestingly enough, uh, so Maimonides was written about 800 years ago, 850 years ago. He writes that mo most of the astronomy that I use in order to determine the calendar and understand it, I'm actually getting it from Greek books. Why? He says, says the Jewish sages wrote books. They were from the tribe of Issachar. They wrote books, but we don't have those books anymore. He says, I, I, the reason I'm depending on the Greek books is because this is this is math and science. This is this is stuff you don't need tradition for. This is if you, if you know how to do the math, you'll come to it. There's methods, there's stuff, you know, all the all the in mathematics, for example, you don't have to have a tradition. <laughs> Either it works or it doesn't work. Either one plus one is two or, or it's not, you know. What? Well, yeah, in every religion, every language. Not in communism, by the way, not in Soviet uh, Russia. Over there, I don't know what it was. Of course, no, but they, they had it for Moses. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I don't know if everyone here heard that, but uh, when they were giving testimony, it's not like the Sanhedrin was unsure how exactly it would, what they would look. They knew exactly what to expect, and that's how they cross-examined the witnesses. So it was, it was definitely not up in the air. It wasn't something that was out of control, but it was formulated in a way that there was a lot of human involvement. Anyway, let's get into the Rebbe Sicha. There's actually a lot, of, a lot of text here, so let's go through it. Page six. Uh, the leap year offsets the 11-day difference between the lunar and solar year. The Talmud, the Talmud states that Israel follows the moon, the smaller of the two luminaries, because the Jewish people are small as well. As the verse states, you are smallest among the nations. Therefore, the small follow the small. And we calculate months according to the moon, beginning with the month of Nisan, which is the first of the months. However, we also commanded to keep the month of the spring to ensure the Passover is celebrated during the spring, that Shavuot is celebrating during the harvest, Sukkot in the fall. Although the commandment speaks specifically about Passover and spring and other seasons are dependent on the sun. The Torah resolves this issue by adding one month each two or three years. When these additional days reach a sum of 30 or slightly, he's quoting Maimonides or slightly less, an additional month is added, causing the year to include 13 months. This is called a leap year. Page seven, the extra month is always Adar. Were the month not to be added, Passover would sometimes fall in the summer, sometimes in the winter, according to some codifiers. The commandment of leap years is directly associated with celebrating Passover in spring. In other words, the purpose of the leap year, which is called a completely complete year, is to fill the gap between the lunar year and the solar year. That's the significance of leap year. Sun and moon are not in sync. Let's put them in sync. In fact, it not only fills the gaps created in the past, but also gives several days as an advance for the future year, right? If you have after three years, you have an accumulation, or after only after two years, so you only have 22 extra days, you throw in 30 days of an extra month, you've got seven extra days to go. So it's not always just making up. Sometimes it's giving us advance credit. So what does this all have to do with you and me? Okay, we are compared to the moon. This teaches us a lesson, page eight. 
What is the difference between the sun and the moon? The sun shines every day in the exact same fashion, while the moon fluctuates. Sometimes it grows, and sometimes it shrinks. The Jewish people are compared to the moon. First of all, as mentioned earlier, we are the smallest of the nations from a perspective of numbers. Anyone that's worried that says, well, it's so abnormal. We only have 14 million, 15 million. You know what the answer is? That's the normal. What do you mean? There's a billion Chinese. We'll never be a billion. We'll never be a hundred million. It's not going to happen. We're always going to be the minority. Always going to be a very small, tiny minority. Only by numbers, right? What's always that meme that everyone lo loves to show? And how many Nobel Prize and the percentage and all that type of stuff. So many times when it comes to quality, we're a little bit overrepresented. But, um, but in numbers, we're always going to be the smallest. This was the case throughout the generations, including in the days of King Solomon when the moon was full. The only time that the Jewish people had real autonomy and true peace in the world was during the 40 years of King Solomon's reign. That's a, that's in a, a very sorry type of number. I mean, we've been around for over 3,000 years, and we can only say for 40 years we're in our homeland, had complete autonomy and peace. It's amazing, huh? King David was at war all the time. After King Solomon died, there was civil war in the land of Israel. So like, it was only about 40 years that's called the full moon. Interestingly enough, what day of the month is the full moon? The 15th. How many generations from Abraham was King Solomon? The 15th, I think it was from Abraham, yeah. 15 generations. I'll try to do the numbers right now. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Peretz, Chetzrein, Kalev. And then I'm going to have to work backwards here, but uh, it's 15 from Abraham. Put it that way. It's 15 generations from Abraham. I, I, there's some names in the middle. I wasn't going to get off the top of my head, but, um, but it's 15 generations from Abraham was, was Solomon. He was a 15th, uh, 15 generations removed. So 15 generations later, that was like the full moon of the Jewish people. Anyway, we haven't had that since. But even then, we were the minority. Um, and many lands paid tribute to Solomon. Nonetheless, from the perspective of quantity, the Israelites were a very small number in comparison to the many multitudes of the nations. So that's number one. But moreover, we are compared to the moon because we experience fluctuations. We are sometimes on the rise and sometimes on the decline. As we see throughout Jewish history, I was just listening to an interesting Jewish historian. He says, yeah, the story of Jews is we have like 100 or 120 years of good and then bam, something comes and all, you know, all this junk comes and then there's the, the pogrom or there's uh, some expulsion culminating with the Holocaust. You know, it's always up and down, up and down. You never know what. Um, so that's as a nation. that's as a nation why we are compared to the moon. Because uh, it's never dependable, really. You know, first of all, we're the smallest, and second of all, we're constantly on the rise and on the decline, at least with regard to experience in this world. Page nine. This is also true in our personal lives. There are matters which undergo change and matters which remain static. For example, in the three matters in which a person is equal to an animal, such as eating and drinking, there's no difference between his childhood, adolescence, and elderly years. From the moment a person is born through his final moments on earth, he needs to eat and drink. 
Although he is capable of fasting for certain durations of time, it is definitely contrary to his nature. Anyone here love fasting? Even if you like fasting for a day, you have to eat after that day, right? So you always have to eat. However, so this is with regard to just, you know, the survival of the body. With the more inner faculties, like the power of intellect, a person is born untamed and he gains wisdom as he grows all the way until his old age. And even in old age, there are differences and fluctuations with regard to intellect as well. So even so, when it comes to intellect and emotions, those can go up, go down. You know, hopefully, you're only getting better. Some people decline in that, right? Some people, as they get older, they get smarter, sharper, more present. Some people, as they get older, they lose their sharpness, right? So in the inner faculties, time can make different changes. It can either be on the rise or on the decline, etc. That's with regard to our personal experience as human beings. Then let's talk about our relationship with God. Likewise, in our service of God, there are things which change, like the moon, and things that remain the same, like the sun. For a Jewish person, there are certain matters which are fundamentals. For example, if something is expressly commanded in the code of Jewish law, and all the more so in the written Torah, page 10, obviously, changes will not occur. Shabbos is Shabbos and kosher is kosher. All these things, they're, they're official. But something like a rabbinic decree or possibly a minor issue, it is possible that it will be more meticulous when in places where he is recognized while not being as careful while traveling and while in places where he is less recognized. He might forgo particulars like Chalavisrol and Pasisrol. These are extra important, uh, pious ways of keeping kosher um, so, so a person will say, like, when I'm home and I'm within the community, I'm going to make sure to only buy the milk that's cholavis or all. But when I'm traveling, yeah, no one knows who I am anyway, so whatever. He knows that his location makes no difference from God's perspective, but there are differences, ups and downs in his own experience. So the fact of the matter is, in Jewish, in, in our national experience and in our personal experience, you have some things that are the same. We have some things that are going to be different. In other words, we're basically like the moon in almost all aspects. This is true of all sorts of people. Even if a person is not very observant and experiences these fluctuations on a regular basis, when it comes to something which affects his Jewish essence, he will be willing to sacrifice his life to sanctify God's name. So the, the, the Rebbe is basically saying, sometimes you can have a guy who's extremely flimsy on a lot of things in Judaism, but it's going to come to a certain fundamental. My identity as a Jew that's not moving. That's immovable, right? That's like the sun. On the on, on the other hand, you have those you have those Jews that are very pious. So you think that their Judaism is more sun-like. Well, um, there is no righteous person who does not sin at all. He might not sin in matters associated with written Torah, or oral Torah, but rather fail to observe a mitzvah in its most meticulous manner. Um, anyway, so that's so the idea is. Let's go to page eleven. The idea is that we all experience sun-like moments and moon-like moments. And the truth of the matter is that the Jewish, Jewish people are overwhelmingly compared to the moon, uh, definitely on a national level. Uh, our national experience is that way. First of all, we're the minority, just like the moon is smaller than the sun. That's the only dependable thing you can know about Jews. We'll always be in the minority. Uh, maybe, not in, maybe not in a specific neighborhood, but uh, on, on the main, we will be the minority. Um, and also in personal experience, everyone knows that uh, they're constantly fluctuating, getting better, getting worse. They're on the rise or on the decline. We find this concept in Jewish law. So the Rebbe goes even deeper 
And he says that the idea that a person can have fluctuating piety is in fact, you, you like that idea? Fluctuating piety, <laughs> fluctuous piety. Um, that itself is actually an accepted reality, which is taken into account in Jewish law. Now, I got to give a little bit of a background here. So we mentioned earlier that when it comes to produce in the land of Israel, that kind of could be quite complex, not just with regard to Shemitah with the sabbatical year, but in addition, there is some, there's the tithes, there's tithing. So if someone has a field that takes produce, they have to set aside a certain amount for the Kohen, a certain amount for the Levite, a certain amount for the poor. So also, if you think, if you think America taxes us, Judaism taxes a farmer big time. Uh, these taxes only apply to the land of Israel. So in general, farming, agriculture in the land of Israel comes with a host of, uh, of issues. And that, by the way, that's why Jaffa oranges, it's not just for Shemitah you have to be worried about. There's, all, there's the tithing and the, there's a lot of stuff. So basically, anytime you find fruits or vegetables from the land of Israel, it's got to have a hechshir. It's got it's to have a, a kosher certification. That's just the reality. So... I'm just giving the, the bare minimum of details that I think is necessary in order to appreciate this, the, what the following concept. There was a certain point in, in Jewish history where they made a poll, they did like a study, and they realized that there was a certain tithe, there was a certain you know, offering that had to be taken from the produce that most people were not careful with. Most people were not careful with separating this tithe, this miser, this tenth, this 10% that had to be separated. So. Uh, there, there was a, an enactment, there was a decree enacted that, that any produce that you purchase from, from a regular person, from the masses, you have to tithe it on your own. In other words, someone who wants to be meticulous about mitzvot, if you purchase any type of produce in a regular store, from what's called an amaret, someone who's not really involved in Torah study all the time, they're, they're, you know, the masses, they were not careful with this tithe. So if you pr purchase produce, you have to separate the tithe. So you say, just ask the guy. The answer is, since they're not careful with it, they're going to lie about it. They just want to make a buck. They're going to lie about it. And therefore, be careful and make sure to take the tithe. However, however, if it's Shabbat, right, and you had purchased, let's say, a, a uh, a bag of olives from a store that was owned by a person who typically, if you purchase olives from this person, you have to take off this tithe because, you know, it's, it's not a person that's very involved and not very careful about this tithe. So you have to take it off. Let's say you purchased a bag of olives. It was right before Shabbos. You brought it home. And you realized, oh, vey, I didn't separate the tithe from this bag of olives. And on Shabbos, you're not allowed to separate the tithe. It gets even more complex as we go on. On Shabbos, you're not allowed to do it. Can I eat the olives? Right? Am I stuck with a bunch of olives that I can't eat in order to enjoy the Shabbos meal? So the Talmud says you can go to the store owner on Shabbos and ask the store owner if he separated the tithe. The tithe, T-I-T-H-E, the 10%, the like the tithing, the tithe from the, from the produce. So, so you have this, this, this Jew who wants to do things right, and he purchased the bag of olives from, from someone that, you know, typically on a regular day, you would have to separate your own tithe in order to be able to eat it because eating produce that was not tithed properly is a very big sin. So you have this bag of olives, it's Shabbos already, you can't tithe it, and you bought it from a store that really you do have to tithe. So 
On Shabbos, you can go to the store owner and ask the store owner if he had separated the tithes from the produce. If he says yes, on Shabbos, you can trust him. But on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even if he says, I tithed it, you got to tithe it yourself. One second, listen to it. In other words, and why, the Talmud says, because on Shabbos, he won't lie. So on Shabbos, if he really tithed it, he'll tell you yes. If he didn't tithe it, he'll tell you. On a regular weekday, he wants to make a buck. So he'll even lie in order to make the sale. This is a profound, actually. In other words, Jewish law is taking into account that days make a difference. Because it's the holy day, he's not going to lie. Not holy day? Meh. Business as usual. He closed. Okay. He's, you won't come back the next day. The, the point, the, the question is, can you trust him on this issue? When you know that typically they're not trustworthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Jew. No, we're talking about purchasing from a Jew, but a Jew that it was, in other words, they did a survey. Always within Judaism, there were, there were those that were very much steeped in Torah study. And then you had the masses. That was simply, many things, either they didn't know how important it was. They knew about mitzvot. They, they kept all the mitzvot, but there was a lot of intricacies and complexities that many of them were not aware of. Jewish guys open. shouldn't be open. I really should close. But for my benefit, oh, no, he's not open. It's not Shabbos. He's not open on Shabbos. The guy's closed. You bought it before Shabbos. You bought it on Friday. This has to be clear. No, you went to the store. He's a store. There's a shopkeeper. He's not. No, no. He's a shopkeeper, and you purchased it on Friday before Shabbos. You brought it home. Typically, when shopping in the store, you have to take the home tithes off, and everything is fine. Problem is, you brought it home, and you forgot to take the tithe. Shabbos came. No. Can I eat the olives? So what we're saying is, find the shopkeeper at home, whatever, or in the synagogue. Walk up to him. Yeah. Walk up. No, 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 no. Not to the store. No, 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 no. Yeah, he's in the synagogue and whatever. Or he's taking a walk. Whatever. No, no, no. He's not open. He's not open. He's Shabbos observant. Also Shabbos observant. The store owner is also Shabbos observant. The store owner is Shabbos observant. The thing is, he's Shabbos observant, but he's from those that this specific tithe, they don't do it. Okay? In other words, yeah, both people are Shabbos observant. The question is about this food, can I eat it? It's a complex story. The point is that the Talmud is telling us that the holiness of the day of Shabbos has an impression on people that on Shabbos they won't lie. One time the Rebbe would say, my grandfather loved to say the story. He was once standing by a febring and, and the Rebbe mentioned this law that on Shabbos, even a person who is in the category that doesn't usually take the ties, they won't lie. So the Rebbe stopped for a moment and smiled and said, if he doesn't work hard at it. <laughs> in other words, he could lie if he tries hard to. <laughs> in, in other words, don't be naive and walk around and believe everything you hear on Shabbos. Someone could lie to you on Shabbos, but there's a certain how you say, expectation that the holiness of Shabbos has an impression and an influence on people that they're more trustworthy. They, they could work hard at uh, selling you a bridge and make sure not to buy it on Shabbos either, right? So yeah, it's just that he, he would always say that ever smiled and said, if he doesn't work hard at it, he, he could lie if he wanted to, but anyway. All right. Um, 
Likewise, let's go all the way to, likewise, there are daily fluctuations as well. We're on the last paragraph, page 11. When a person is in the midst of prayer or Torah study, he is in a sublime state, a Shabbat state, as a Jew ought to always be. But after prayer, when he leaves the synagogue to engage in earning a livelihood and must compete with those around him, it becomes much more difficult to meticulously observe every detail of the code of Jewish law with regard to encroaching on other businesses, gossip, and so on, when he needs to ensure his family's livelihood, right? You say, well, I have to provide, so I can cut corners here, cut corners there. Um, and it's only normal for that to be someone's approach. Why? He's not in the synagogue right now. He's not davening. He's not learning. He's, you know, he has to make a livelihood. So that's obviously, um, so, so in other words, the moon represents this reality that sometimes we're not at our best behavior. Okay, that's where sun would be. We're at our best behavior. Moon represents the idea that at the end of the day, sometimes we're waning, sometimes we're shrinking, sometimes we're not as bright as we should be, sometimes we're not bringing light to the world, we're eh, probably bringing more darkness to the world, right? So, what's the message of the leap year? Page 12. This is the lesson of a leap year in order to fill the gap of the lunar year. It is necessary to add a month, which will not only fill the gap, but be a supplement as well for the future. When in a state of change, which means a state of decline, we're waning, we're losing our light. Our teshuva, the way you repent, the way you make up for that, must be such that not only will we behave as we did before the decline, but we will be on a higher level. What's the idea of the leap year? The leap year doesn't just say, okay, how many days are we missing? 11, 22, let's add a month of 22 days. No, sometimes we're missing 22 days. We're going to add 30. We're going to add 30 and get seven extra. The way the leap year works, the way it works in the system that it keeps the lunar and solar cycle in sync is that sometimes we have to do extra. And that's the message here, that sometimes when we're in decline, the way to rebound is not just to go back to our original state, not just to go back to being acceptable. We got to do extra. We have to do more. The Alter Rebbe in Tanya cites the statement of Tana Devei Elio, which is a, an ancient book, uh, the teachings of Elijah the prophet. If a person committed a sin and deserves the death penalty before God, what should he do to live? If he was accustomed to studying one page, he should study two. If he was accustomed to studying one chapter, he should study two. In other words, give yourself a booster. I don't know exactly how boosters work, but something tells me just from the word booster, what they're injecting into you is not just what you had before, but they're giving you some extra, something to boost whatever immunity you have. Same thing with teshuva. Teshuva is not just to get you back to square one. Teshuva means you got to invest more energy, more time, more mitzvahs, extra. That's the way to do teshuva. As explained, as explained at length in books of Jewish ethics about teshuva, someone who is in the midst of doing teshuva, someone's constantly in repentance, needs to be extra careful in the matters in which he failed in the past. In order to fill the lack of the lunar year, it is not enough to add the missing days. We need to add an entire month. As we said earlier, a year must consist of entire months, resulting in a year with far more days than a regular one. In fact, the lunar uh, a leap year is 382, something like that, 380-something. Um, that's much more than 354, 365. You're gonna have a, you have a lot of days. 
This is called Shana Tamima, complete the year. In other words, we gain true completion and wholeness in our service to our Creator, specifically when after a decline, we make an extra effort to gain even more than we had achieved earlier. So this is one message that the leap year brings to the table, and that is, and in this message, the sun represents dependable Judaism, piety, continuity, you know, always, always doing things right, and the moon represents decline. The moon represents we're doing something wrong, and therefore in order to fix things up, in order to recalibrate, to bring them into sync, you have to, you have to really put a lot of effort into it and throw an extra. When you throw an extra, that's what brings you up to speed. That's what brings the moon in sync with the sun. That will, that's what brings our decline back to where we should be and even more. The next, the next point we're going to learn on page 14, we'll go through this quickly. I see we're, we're short in time. Um, it's from a, from a letter that the Rebbe wrote, uh, actually, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, 1984. Was the, it was two weeks before Passover, uh, and that was also a leap year. And the Rebbe speaks about the message of the sun and the moon. But here, the Rebbe brings, expresses these two messages as both of them being positive. Both of them are positive. So let's go through this quickly. Both the sun and the moon were created to give light upon the earth and to serve mankind. While the task of human being is to quote our sages, I was created to serve my creator, namely to serve God. In the previous message, the moon represents darkness, represents decline. Here we're going to say, well, the moon was also put in the sky in order to bring light. So there must be a positive message to the waxing and waning, the fluctuations of, of the moon. There's an obvious difference between the sun and the moon in the manner of their providing light on the earth. The sun radiates its light in the same constant manner without perceptible change from day to day. On the other hand, the moon renews itself, which is why the moon is called Chodesh, Chodesh, as it reappears or is reborn at the beginning of each month, first as a narrow crescent and then becoming fuller and brighter from day to day until it attains its complete fullness and brightness on the 14th, 15th day of the month. In other words, the sun and the moon symbolize two different characteristics. The sun represents the element of sameness and constancy. The moon, change and renewal. Both these elements are found in our service of God. And although at first glance they appear contradictory, both of them combined together are indispensable to achieve completeness in our service of God. The explanation is as follows. There are some aspects of serving God which are the same from day to day without change. For instance, a Jew begins every day immediately upon rising from his sleep with the declaration of Modani, acknowledging and thanking God, the living and eternal King, for giving him life and fresh powers to serve him. So is also the mitzvah of reading the Shema, expressing total commitment to God and to his commandments to the point of self-sacrifice. So are the blessings and prayers which are recited every day. So also the mitzvah of learning and of learning our, loving our fellow and a host of other commandments which are which Jew is obligated to do each and every day. It makes no difference if it's a weekday, if it's Shabbos, if it's a Shabbat, Yom Kippur. All of these mitzvahs are done every single day. At the same time, a Jew is expected to generate the renewal and resurgence of inspiration and joy in all matters of Judaism, particularly those that are repeated every day so that they should be experienced as if they have been just given that day by God for the first time. So here's a challenge. You've got those sun parts of Judaism. It's happening every day. But you have to always be renewed. Someone once asked Rabbi Steinzaltz, doesn't it get boring to read the same words of the Siddur 
of the prayer book every day. So he says, the words might get boring, but if you're the same guy reading it every day, then you're boring. The prayers you read today are different because you're a different person today. So you have to you have to be able to get yourself to a point where you're like the moon. Every morning you're refreshed and renewed, even though you're going to say the same modani. But it's a different person saying modani. An additional measure of inspiration, now this is easier. The, the previous one, it's harder to be re-inspired every day from the same thing that you do. An additional measure of inspiration is necessary on special days. Shabbat and holidays, which are associated with additional prayers and special commandments that have to be fulfilled only on those special days such as lighting candles, making Kiddush on Shabbos and holidays, eating matzah during the season of our freedom, and so forth. These certainly call for special inspiration and joy, so much so that the holiness of Shabbat should be felt every day of the week, and the teachings of the festivals should be an inspiration throughout the year. Thus, for example, it is explained by our sages that the season of our freedom should be experienced daily in terms of freedom from all inner and outer limitations that hinder the fullest pursuit of serving God wholeheartedly and with joy, being truly free. So what does the leap here teach us? It teaches us that both the sun and both the moon and the sun need to be utilized in the service of God. A Jewish calendar is not just a lunar calendar. It's not just a solar calendar. Judaism is not just about change and excitement, and it's not just about sameness and constancy. It's about the two of them together. We have to learn yeah, exactly. We have to merge them. We have to bridge that gap between constancy and excitement. And we have to know how to take the day-to-day -day service of God that should have the excitement and, 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 and vigor that comes with something that's new and exciting and, and, and different. And also the, the new and exciting things, Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, all of these unique and special days should have an impact on the day today. The sun and the moon have to work together in our schedule. And with that, uh, this is the message. Sure. Nine, one second. Every person. Okay. For example, in the three matters in which a person is equal to an animal, procreating. That's why they left that. That's not relevant. The child doesn't do it either. There's the ability for that. Whatever. Uh, a girl can get pregnant uh, very, very young, right? A boy can impregnate also very young. It's not. Uh... In other words, the, the body functions in that way. The, the possibility for procreation is there. So it's like it's a constant thing. That's for a different class. Different class. <laughs> for a different class. Different time. For, for the for the wacky stories of Judaism. Yeah, here we'll stop.